had my kids at 15. The two older ones are twins, and the second one was like 11 months from that pregnancy. My name's Alicia. I'm 29. As a younger child, my mother um, had us living in and out of her vehicle, and we were between Utah and New Mexico a lot. I was 13 when she lost her apartment that I last stayed with her in. I was, like, couch surfing at my friend's house. And I worked at a little Mexican restaurant under the table just as a dishwasher, but I was able to make enough to help with rent. I paid $5.75 for a two-bedroom, and those were the days. <laughs> it was so cheap. My child's father was with me, so he was working himself. I, till this day, I don't know how... I made it work. I just remember like coming home, cleaning the house, getting the kids ready for bed, dinner, and do it all over again. And before I knew it, my life just like turned. I got caught driving and I wasn't old enough to be driving. And they told me that I had a warrant for my arrest. And I didn't know why, because I'd never been in trouble before. So I was like, how? And back then, you got in trouble for not going to school. So truancy. So when I went to the juvenile courts to resolve it, they ended up asking me all kinds of questions. Where my parents were, where I was living, who provides, just a lot, everything. And um, with my situation with my child's father, um, he actually had like criminal charges from like California and was kicked out of the state of California. And so it was considered an endangerment to my children. And it just led to a big messy ordeal. I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. You need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we're taking a fresh look at the problem of poverty. Alicia's story contains threads that run through the experience of poverty for many in America. It often passes from one generation to the next. It's often rooted in trauma. And it's not the kind of thing where someone is desperately in need all the time. The U.S. Census Bureau says one in 10 Americans is in poverty, which means earning less than about $26,000 a year for a family of four. Now, that family is likely to be relying on at least one government support program for food or health care, and they'll have months or years where they're doing okay. They're not starving or homeless, but they're also not really thriving because the housing conditions are poor quality or crowded. Their nutrition suffers at the end of the month when money gets tight. Their work hours are unreliable, which means that one crisis, a lost job, a broken car, sudden illness, can send that family sliding right back into the clutches of much more desperate need. Today on Top of Mind, what would it take to get those families onto solid footing for good? And more importantly, can we justify doing anything less than whatever it takes? America, after all, was founded on religious freedom and the promise of prosperity. Is any amount of deprivation acceptable for a country with so much wealth and faith? Day to day is how I've always just lived. Like, are, how are we going to make it through tomorrow? And that's basically what I've been doing. This is Alicia again. Where we left off in her story, she was the teenaged mother of three, working under the table, living in a cheap apartment with the father of her youngest. She had dropped out of high school, but wasn't on any government programs at the time. She really felt that if she just worked hard enough, she'd be able to give her kids the stable life she never had. And then she got pulled over for driving. She was only 15 and found out she was wanted for truancy. I had police come to my house, and they said they had a warrant to remove my children from my home. And I told them they weren't going without me. So they're like, well, you can come, but we just have a warrant for the kids. And I went with them, and they put me in a foster home and had me going to school, and I woke up every morning 
and got my kids. It was so hard going from having a car to like a stroller and three kids and a bus. <laughs> it was really wild. And then it got worse. She took the kids to see their father on Halloween. I wasn't aware that he wasn't doing very good. And he was under the influence. Like it got, it got violent. He got violent with me. And I got in the car to leave. And he ran in front of the car and I kept going. So I basically ran him over, mm-hmm. hit and run. Um, and then the gaslight came on, literally like right after that. And I was like, what do I do now? Because I'm broke. He met me right there and was in the middle of the road again. He forced his way into the driver's seat, ran a red light, caused an accident. The police came. So I got charged with um, driving without a license, reckless driving, and attempted murder. She got sent to a psychiatric hospital instead of jail. The state tracked down Alicia's mother and had her sign over custody to the state for both Alicia, who was still a minor, and her three kids. Well, then they started giving me deals. They told me, either you let us take the baby and you keep your twins, or we keep your twins and you take the baby. But if you fight for all of them with how it looks, you're going to lose. And we will prove you a non-fit parent and your future children will go to the system. And at that point, I just, I told them, I I wasn't going to separate my kids. That was not an option for me. So I was, I let them have custody of my kids. And I told them as long as they're together. That's all I care about, because they need each other more than they need me. And that's what happened. That's all I remember from that day. And they let me out, and my foster mom had to sit in the bathroom with me. And I don't remember anything from that whole week. I just remember she took me home with her, and I think I slept. I feel like it was a week. Maybe it was longer. (laughs) And my foster mom... I just remember her coming in and trying to get me to eat or drink something. And I just slept. And I stayed asleep until my little foster sister, she would slide little pictures under the door of me and her playing in the backyard. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I need to get up. (laughs) She did get up. But she really, really struggled. And a year later, when she turned 18 and aged out of the foster care system, she was left completely alone outside the courthouse. No phone, no clothes, nothing. That was it. And I've been pretty much on my own since then. Alicia started over, couch surfing, working any job she could find. She did not get her kids back. She hasn't seen them since they were separated from her. But she did reconnect with the father of her youngest, same guy from before who'd been violent toward her, caused that car accident. He and Alicia just happened to end up working at the same factory, and he was doing better at the time. So they rekindled things, moved in together, got married, and things were looking up. We ended up buying a condo and... We got our boat and our truck, and we were doing really good. And then we got pregnant, and we had my son that I have now. He's nine. And when he was three, we ended up splitting up because my husband relapsed. The split was for good this time. So again, Alicia started over. Without a high school degree, her earning potential is limited. So she needed to work full time, but she had no one to watch her toddler. Luckily, she was able to get assistance from the state to pay for childcare. But then she got pregnant again, and it was a surprise because several doctors had told her she could not have any more kids because of some health problems she'd had. Alicia says the father of the new baby offers some support, but marriage isn't on the table. She scaled back to part-time work since giving birth to the baby at the end of 2021. And for the first time in her life, she has enrolled in the full range of government aid, 
housing, food stamps, health care. I will definitely get off of them. I do not think that it's something that you stay on for a very long time. I think it's like if you really need it, it's not something you should abuse. But for now, welfare programs are giving her the time to finish her high school diploma, start on a college degree, and do the one thing she hopes will ensure this cycle of poverty stops with her. Making more time for my son. Like, I think that's a really big thing. So going on the services was a way for you to try to be a better mom to Focus on my kids and be a better mom. That's all I've ever wanted to do. But a hard choice because you feel like you're reliant. I feel like I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and I just, but I mean, I'm, I know I'm doing something because... My son's happy and he has things that I never had and he has attention and love and dates with me. And um, those are the, I look forward to those like every week. (laughs) She's also enrolled in a program called Circles that's designed to help people escape poverty permanently and achieve big goals. I want to be able to have my credit up or purchase a house by at least 36, 37 years old where my kids can come home to and be safe and they know it's always going to be there. I'm always going to have a home. You won't have to go look for me in my car. (laughs) We've got more about that Circles program in a bit. First, though, it's worth knowing a little more about how the U.S. government supports people in poverty. We spend billions of dollars on this as a country every year. What difference does that money make? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. What we know as welfare in America got its start with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. During the Great Depression, the government started offering cash assistance and food stamps to needy families. After the Depression, the food stamps went away, but the cash program stuck around, geared mainly toward helping single mothers and their kids. By the 1960s, the rising rate of poverty was again on the president's radar. Lyndon B. Johnson declared war on poverty in his first State of the Union address. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. We cannot afford to lose it. Johnson's war on poverty brought back food stamps, created Medicare for the elderly, and doubled down on cash assistance for needy families. Over the next few decades, the number of single women with children relying on cash welfare rose steadily, along with the number of babies born out of wedlock. And by the 1990s, politicians across the spectrum started to believe that welfare had contributed to the destruction of the American family and had undermined work. It paid almost exclusively single mothers not to work and not to be married. And we roughly had one in six children on that program in 1996, and the average family would stay on there about 14 years. This is Robert Rector. He's a senior research fellow in welfare and poverty issues at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Bill Clinton was elected president in 1992, almost exclusively on the pledge that he was going to end welfare as we knew it. For so long, government has failed us, and one of its worst failures has been welfare. I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of welfare dependency. We'll provide education, job training, and child care. But then those who are able must go to work, either in the private sector or in public service. I played a central role in designing that. Robert Rector is considered an architect of the welfare reforms that President Clinton and a Republican-controlled Congress passed in 1996. Work requirements were added to all the welfare programs, including the cash assistance program that had been doling out checks to poor families twice a month since the Great Depression. You see an immediate surge in employment among the less educated single moms. The economy was also growing at the time, so that helped with the employment numbers. But Rector thinks one of the biggest benefits was the message the reforms sent to young people about the importance of marriage. Before welfare reform, says Rector. The message was, if you get pregnant and you have a child and you're not married, 
we're going to give you maybe five, $6,000 a year in cash every year of that child's life until he's 18. And then we're going to top that up with adding food stamps and Medicaid and housing and other things on top of that. All the programs combined had what's called an enabling effect. It was no longer necessary to put the investment into finding the right spouse, setting up a relationship, getting the household together before you had kids. When welfare reform started requiring young single moms to go back to high school or get a job in order to get aid, Rector says that created an incentive to marry. And children who grow up with married parents in America generally enjoy a higher standard of living than those in single-parent households. There's a thing called the success sequence uh, that was invented at the Brookings Institute, which basically says the road out of poverty and into uh, working or middle class is is to finish high school, to get a job, and then get married before you have kids or shortly after you have kids. And if you do that, your children are not going to be consistently poor. Most people in the upper middle class intuitively understand that. But in lower income communities in general, the success sequence is no longer well understood. The work requirements were aimed at able-bodied welfare recipients not people with disabilities who are unable to work. But even for able-bodied people, Rector acknowledges some will never be able to earn enough to get off welfare completely. That's why our welfare system is currently designed, although it has it has its flaws, it's currently designed to provide sort of a wage supplementation to low-wage parents. So if we were to take the example, let's take a, a single mother with two kids who is trying to work at the federal minimum wage, which is about $14,000 a year. Is she poor? Yeah, she's really poor. Can she support the family on that? Absolutely not. What we do is we give that mother a a wide range of benefits to complement her earnings, as much as $8,000 from the earned income tax credit and additional child tax credit. She gets a bunch of money from food stamps. The children get child nutrition. So that when you look at her earnings combined with those other programs, she actually has a cash income up around $25,000, a year. They will also get Medicaid in almost every state. That's putting their economic resources up to in the mid-30s or high-30s. And if they get public housing, uh, her income goes up to close to $50,000 a year. Um, And that, uh, except for the public housing, those are all, I think, very good programs recognizing that many parents really can't support a family on their their wages, but we want them to work to the extent they can. And then if they still are in need, we're going to supplement those earnings. But here is what really frustrates Robert Rector. When the U.S. government calculates the poverty rate in America, it only looks at a family's income. So that single mother getting all that support from the government still shows up as poor in poverty statistics, which can be used to argue for more spending on welfare programs. There may be unmet needs the government should address, says Rector. But the first thing to do is is let's define that problem. And let's not pretend that the average family that the government is defining as poor is is in fact living in a boarded up row house or is living in in a corrupt trailer park or something like that, because it's simply not true. But advocates who want to see more spending on people in poverty say it's also wrong to assume that families receiving welfare support are just fine. The second that you hit a hard spot, maybe you got laid off or maybe you were evicted because your rent went up, right? Any of these things that these type of crises that happen to families all the time, you really didn't have that that cash cushion to catch you when you fall, even for a short amount of time. This is University of Michigan professor Luke Schaefer. He's a leading poverty researcher and co-author of $2 a Day, which highlights how America's current safety net can still leave families in critical need of short-term cash. Our argument is, you know, to survive in 21st century America, uh, you need a little bit of money. You need a little bit of money to um, buy toothbrushes, to buy school supplies, to buy toilet paper a little bit of money to keep the light bill on for a little longer. And 
Um, these are all things that you can't buy with your food assistance. Food assistance, which used to be called food stamps, is known today as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And it comes on a special debit card that can only be used for food, nothing else, not even tampons or soap, and definitely not gas to fill the tank enough to get to work and make some cash. The other commonly used aid programs like housing and child care subsidies don't give a person cash either. The subsidy goes straight to the landlord or to the daycare center. And so what about that cash assistance program where families could actually get money each month to fill the gaps? Welfare reform in the 90s added work requirements, but more importantly, says Schaefer, state governments took over the program. We turned it into what's called a block grant that states can really use. You know, they're supposed to use it on certain things, but they can really use it to do a lot of things they were going to spend on otherwise. So states get a set amount of money from the federal government and make their own criteria for who can qualify to get cash assistance. But the state doesn't have to give all that money out as cash. It can be spent on any program that tackles poverty or promotes marriage and self-sufficiency. And so in a way, like that has become unrestricted money that states could sort of swap out and, and do a lot less of providing cash assistance to families and a lot more of other things. But not like um, building roads with it. I mean, they still have to use well, it. That's the question, right? So, you know, take Texas, for example. They, they, they turn their cash assistance program, you know, it's just a tiny sliver, you know, we would argue it's dead. And they put a lot of the money into child welfare, right, their foster care system. But they didn't necessarily really increase the amount of money they were, they were spending on their foster care system. So if they're spending, you know, roughly the same amount that they would have otherwise on that program, and they're using this money to do it, then they can use that other money for something else. But if they're then just using the money that they're using for foster care for building roads, then, yeah, they're kind of using the TANF money for building roads. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are you saying there's a lot less cash assistance being distributed in America oh, today? Yeah, way less, right? It just declines 80, 80 plus percent. And it's only going to continue to go down, right? Because the incentives are all for states to use the money for other stuff. So what do poor families in crisis do when they're desperate for cash to fill the gas tank or cover the rent? We learned a lot about families selling their blood plasma. Um, you can make $30 a, a pop. You know, they might, if they're really desperate to keep a roof over their kids' heads, they might uh, resort to uh, selling sex, right, or sexual favors. In our book, we write about a small town in uh, the Mississippi Delta where there are no jobs, right? And where the only sort of resources coming into a household is um, food assistance. And so you can't actually sell your blood plasma down in the Mississippi Delta, but you, you could see a year where families are, are forced to sell their SNAP. So this is illegal, but when people are, families are desperate for cash, they might say, hey, I'll, let me buy your groceries. I'll buy you $100 of groceries if you'll give me $50 in return, right? They value sort of the cash to get the stuff they need so much that they're willing to give up 50% of their purchasing power. But then comes the COVID-19 pandemic. And to Schaefer's pleasant surprise, the U.S. government got back into the cash assistance program in a big way. I never expected uh, the, the federal government to have the sort of safety net response that it did. And it was a bipartisan one, right? When you think about the framework that we put together, it was a, a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Democratic uh, House that actually, they moved and they moved pretty fast. So you had the economic impact payments. These were, you know, these one-time um, checks that uh, I'm sure listeners remember. You have expanded unemployment insurance. They increased all those benefits first by 600 and then by 300. They said, you know, what? we recognize that what we were doing before really wasn't going to sustain a family. So we're going to increase those benefits for a period of time. And then expansion of the child tax credit. Lots of other countries have exactly this type of program, often called a child allowance that says, hey, raising kids is expensive. And society has a reason to come alongside parents in that work. And so we're going to provide a small, modest cash stipend, not just to poor families, but to poor families, middle class families, even upper middle class families to recognize that. And what did people do with all that money? A lot of people paid off debt to get their credit scores up, boosted their savings, 
and the poverty rate in America went down in the middle of a huge recession. I think you can't really ask for much more of a success story than we've had. Those monthly child payments for families stopped at the end of 2021. The Biden administration had hoped to make them permanent. So did Republican Utah Senator Mitt Romney, by the way. But the majority of Republicans in Congress don't support sending checks to low- and middle-income families without any strings attached. Here's Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation again. The last thing we want to do if we're truly interested in the well-being of children is to go back to the system of rewarding single parenthood, penalizing marriage, and rewarding non-work, okay? That's the old welfare system. You want to try to create a system where children, to the extent possible, are raised in healthy married couple families uh, and where there's at least one working adult in the household to serve as a role model. When families can't do that, then you want to continue to support them, but support them in a way that pushes them in that direction and doesn't create negative incentives that are going to increase idleness and and undermine marriage. Rector points to some famous studies in the 1970s that showed when people got cash assistance, they worked less. But Luke Schaefer at the University of Michigan says that's not necessarily a bad thing. And he doubts it would happen on a large scale with child tax credits. You know, we're talking about um, $250, $300 per kid. Would you quit your job for $250 a month? The old program that we had, actually, if you went to work, you lost your benefit. And part of the beauty of the way the child tax credit is says, you know, we're going to give the same benefit to low-income families and middle-income families. And you're going to keep it, right? And so you don't have to worry that if you go to work and you're going to have to buy work clothes and you're going to have to pay for childcare, that you're also going to lose a third of your, your welfare benefit or more, right? In some places, you lose, lose a lot more. This benefit stays exactly the same. And so that has a huge neutralizing effect on that concern. You, there might be some families, right, who um, make a decision to work a little bit less. And usually it would be, um, instead of working 40 hours, I want to work uh, 30 hours because I, w- I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to do the parenting work. Uh, on the other hand, there's going to be other families who say, you know what, I couldn't pay for gas to get to the job, right, that's in the suburbs. Now I can't. And so um, there's going to be a bunch of people that it makes it possible, right? Or, oh, I'm going to use this for childcare. Now, I've, I've got this sort of stable amount. I don't have to worry about my job, my hours going up and down. And so I'm going I'm, I'm to be able to work in a, in a place where I wasn't. Or um, second parents, right? Maybe this provides the childcare basis so that they can afford to, to, go, to go to work. Because before, it didn't make any sense for mom to go to work. Should the ultimate goal be to get as many Americans as possible capable of standing on their own two feet without any government support in the form of, you know, child payments or, you know, food stamps or whatever? You know, I think the goal of government should be to help um, empower families to live healthy and productive lives. And so I I believe that the federal government should... um, provide sort of a, a scaffolding for that, uh, a stability. You, you don't see any problem with having a society where a large number of people are relying on government support in some way or another. That, that's, that's what these pro- programs are for, and we shouldn't be worried about that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I would say, um, I mean, that's certainly what we have in the United States right now. It's also what we have in every other Western industrialized country. Every other country that's sort of made any long-term strides in reducing poverty and having healthier societies has a safety net, right? And usually they're much more broadly universal than the one we have. So yeah, if people if people want to see life expectancy go up, if people want to see IQs continue to rise, right? Uh, if people want to see um, uh, people getting healthier, I think, yeah, that's that's the vision is that we have sort of some social um, 
insurance, right? We have these programs that can provide sort of a base level of stability to people and then um, empower them to live healthy and productive lives. Next, let's hear about a program that actually does have the goal of helping people get past the need for welfare support. We had one young lady, her proudest moment was coming over here and having me walk over to cancel her services. She got off public assistance and she was like, I am scared, but I'm going to do this because my grandmother was on it. My mother was on it. So I felt I should have been on it, but I don't want to see my daughter on it. This is Top of Mind. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julie Rose. Poverty can come in different forms. Many of us are just one big health or financial crisis away from needing to rely on government assistance for a bit. Perhaps it's an unemployment check or a visit to a food bank. But the kind of poverty that is most worrisome to public officials is generational poverty. You know, where families are two, two to three generations experiencing public assistance and different things like that. So we want to try and break that. That's the time we're going to go ahead and get started. I've been excited about this meeting. My name is Lamont Hampton. I work for Open Doors as program coordinator for Circles Davis County. Me to introduce somebody that's going to be teaching this class who was actually the first person I signed up for Circles. Circles is a national program for families in poverty. There are chapters of it all over the country. Lamont Hampton works in Davis County, which is a bit north of Salt Lake City, Utah. They start off, they come in and do a 12-week curriculum with us, basically breaking down systematic barriers of what's keeping them in poverty, kind of like to know where we need to bring our resources to them. And it also shows if they're going to be serious about working on this, because a lot of people, they want out of their situations, but sometimes don't know how, and they're so comfortable in the situation, they tend to stay there. So it's kind of we kind of get to see who really wants to be a part of this. So after they go through the 12 weeks, we match them up with what we call allies. And this is when the real work starts. The allies are middle and high income people from the local community who volunteer to be a kind of mentor with a circles participant. They meet weekly to set goals and work on helping the individual who's in poverty overcome whatever barriers they're facing. And what we really want to do is structure a whole new circle around the family. Families that are experiencing poverty, their friends are in poverty, their neighbors, everybody, their family in. So it's that whole circle that keeps them down. You know, one trying to get out, the other one really don't want them to go. So we try to restructure a whole new circle around them and of positive people to help lift them out of their situation. What do you mean that the people in poverty, there are other people who don't want them to get out of poverty? I'll give you a, a story on that. We had a young lady. She married right out of high school had never had a job or anything, four kids. All of a sudden, husband didn't want to be married no more, and he left her with four kids. She joined our Circles program, and we started working with her. She started thriving. Her allies were working with her. She wanted to go back to school and get her her high school diploma GED. All of her friends told her it was stupid. You're 40 years old now. Just go find you any job. You know, why would you go back to school? But having an ally and having that support around her through circles, they encouraged her, this is something, yes, you need to do. You need to keep bettering yourself. You need to keep going. And she did it. But if we would just left her to her friends that were telling her, that's a stupid idea to do that, she probably wouldn't have done it. But now she's a manager at Dillard's. She's doing really well. She's actually engaged to get married again. So she's very excited and we're excited for her to see her grow. In so many ways, Lamont Hampton is the perfect person to head a program like this. Because I've been there. I've come up from there. I come from Compton, California. My mom raised us on, on assistance. We didn't even know meat back then. No Our meat. meat came in a can. That's what we knew because that's what she got from the food bank. I once was incarcerated. I had a record. You know, I I did everything I had to get all that expunge and everything, and I start chasing dreams. I start chasing the things I want to do. About 15 years ago, he decided he needed to get his young family away from the poverty and crime in Compton. So he took out a map and spun a pencil. We literally put the map down and and spun Utah. Like, oh, oh no, maybe we should do this again. <laughs> like, I don't know nothing about Utah. I don't know where it is. I don't. And I was like, you know what? I'm not changing my mind. I started Googling and doing, and 
I gave away everything I had and we packed our clothes in my truck and I started driving. And, and it was the best decision of my life. Hampton went on to launch Circles in Davis County and build a network of contacts that's helped more than 100 families get out of poverty. You know, I am a 350-pound black man in Utah, and I can pick up the phone and call the police chief right now, and he'll answer. So don't tell me you can't overcome obstacles. I don't want to hear. We do dream boards, and they have to put down their, their dreams of what they want. And that's what we want them to do, dream again. You know, if you want you want that big house, we're going to chase it. But be careful what you put on there because I am going to make you chase it. A major obstacle the Circles program focuses on with its participants is what they call the cliff effects that can kick in when someone's on the verge of moving out of poverty and their welfare benefits start shrinking, but their wages don't cover what they're losing. That is precisely the spot Chris Robinson found herself in recently. I've been cutting hours so that I can stay just under enough to be able to keep my Medicaid because it's a balance. (laughs) In the last several years, Robinson's dealt with a lot of trauma. Divorce from an abusive husband that triggered a stint in a homeless shelter, followed by the death of her 13-year-old son, who had been severely ill since birth, and the deaths of her brother, mother, and father in quick succession. So the emotional trauma on top of anxiety, on top of depression, and for my own mental health. My medications were almost $600. $600 a month. Plus, her teenage daughter was recently diagnosed with autism. Robinson's been working part-time for a while at Deseret Industries. That's a thrift store and job training program run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And recently, her boss has been talking about promoting her to a full-time position coaching other workers. But the job would not come with benefits, and Robinson will lose her Medicaid if she earns any more money. It's kind of that cycle that once you get in, it's so hard to get out. But at Circles, Robinson's allies have been encouraging her to consider all her options. And so she kept the door open to that promotion just long enough for... An answer to a prayer. The night we met at a Circles meeting in Salt Lake City, Robinson was still breathless with excitement about what had happened at work that day. They said, oh, we're having a meeting today, and you're going to be there, I'm going to be there, Jackie's going to be there, so um, 10 o'clock. I was like, okay. (laughs) And anyway, long story short is I was offered job coach with benefits and they'll help finish my schooling. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Congratulations. I am so excited for you. That's her Circles ally, Amy Williams, reacting to the news. And benefits and everything. Everything that I, like, 401k, everything that I have needed. Yes. Like, and honestly, I've prayed for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was handed to me on a silver platter. I'm so excited (laughs) for you. This is so exciting. So. You've just had this door, this big door open for you now. (laughs) So like when you peer through there, kind of out in the distance, what do you see for yourself? I think I see um, hope that hasn't been there for a while. It just is hard to see yourself get out, like, knowing the cycle. Like, how do you get out and 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 have it be a success? Because it's not like a slow, gradual drop-off. It's like, you're done, and then you have to figure it out. So to have it figured out is a huge, huge relief for me. Like, a huge burden taken for me because... I can take care of what needs to be taken care of. It also means that Chris Robinson will now transition to a new role in the Circles program. Once families become self-sufficient, they're encouraged to stay involved as allies. Coming back and working with another family that's going through what they went through at that time. This is Lamont Hampton again with Circles in Davis County, Utah. So we keep them heavily involved still. How long does it usually take a family? It depends. I... I have one that's doing very well. They've done it in 18 months. Wow. And, but this couple, 
when we took them, when they came here, they were homeless. I took him, him and his wife down to the Department of Workforce. Adam, meet me over there. And he came, he's like, I'm not doing this. I don't want to get on no public assistance. Because if I get on there, I'm going to get comfortable and I'm going to stay. So I just need your support. And if you will believe in me, I promise you I'll do everything you ask me. I will, I will change my ways. I will be a better person. I will give my all. And I put my time into him and he... He, he's kicking butt right now. What do you mean you put your time into him? Like what? What did you have to do for him? I went out of, went out of my way and helped him with housing. My dad is a single guy, has a three-bedroom. And I actually asked my dad, I'm like, hey, can I get one of your rooms? Wow. Till I can get them set up. So they stayed with my dad for about six months. We got him a job. A friend of mine has a uh, construction company and he hired him as a carpenter. And 18 months later, he called me and was like, hey man, I quit that job, man. I'm like, dude, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Don't mess my name up. You know, I went out and he was like, can I come see you? And I'm like, come on. He come over to the office. It's like, this is why I'm quitting. I'm handing you my business card. I'm starting my business. And we both cried and hugged and everything. And it was like, he was like, I'm going to make you proud of me. I'm going to make you proud of me. And I'm like, okay. We got his business going. He started doing really well with his business. He does carpet repair and cleaning. So some of the city, because we, I get heavily involved with the city. I make the city get involved. You come to our meetings, mayors, commissioners, police. I make the community get involved because we cannot end poverty by ourselves. It's going to take the community to help us do this. So I get them involved, and they did a lot of referrals for him and different things like that. I belong to a networking group of different business owners. Took him to that meeting, and they loved him, and they gave him all the assistance they need, helping with equipment and stuff, and he just took off from there. It sounds like being a friend of Lamont Hampton is, like, you better be ready to get called to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> my friends hate it. I, I, they, they do. But like I say, um, people in my agency even ask me. Like they'll come to my meeting. How did you get the mayor to get to come here? Because I asked him. And this is something like I say. I just demand that everybody get involved. Because if this is a situation we're gonna deal with, we're gonna have to all do it together. What would a community look like? in which poverty could not exist. Paul Bourne is the founder of the Tamarack Institute, which has spent the last couple of decades helping communities tackle poverty. More than 400 cities in Canada and the United States are now using the methodology Bourne developed. Just prior to COVID, we had the lowest poverty in the history of Canada. Um, over one and a half million people had moved out of poverty in, in the last seven years. And we were moving toward a goal of ending poverty by 2030. And I know that sounds really fantastic, but let me describe it. So what happens is that a community uh, like Des Moines, Iowa, or Central Iowa, United Way is very prominent there, and they approached us and they said, uh, Paul, can we develop one of these poverty strategies like you have in Canada? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll work with you. And, and the first thing we did is, is, is we started to look at exactly who was poor and what was the track record of poverty in Des Moines, Iowa. And so once we got the framework of who's living in poverty, then we ask, okay, now what are we going to do about that? How is that any different from the way a community like Des Moines has been trying to deal with its poverty problem always? But it's funny, you go into a place like Des Moines, Iowa, and you ask these basic questions about poverty and no one can answer you right? Just what is the data? And then you start saying, well, who's all working on poverty? And do they talk to each other? Well, they sort of do, but do they work together? Well, mostly they compete with each other for funding. What, what do you mean they're competing? So that would be like food bank and the child care center. The job search center, you know, the clothing center, the you know, community mental health center are all going to the same funders to try to say our work is the most important. Give us your money so we can do our work. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of us saying, um, how do we work together in order to deal with both the root cause and the current reality of poverty? 
we call it a systems mapping. And we look at identifying all the agencies and people who care. And we start to engage them in a dialogue about how do we create the lowest level of poverty in Des Moines, Iowa, in our history. So what we did is we brought 100 people together into a room. We had a handful of the wealthiest people in Des Moines, and we had quite a few of the poorest people in Des Moines in the same room for two days. And together, we came up with a common vision. And then we developed what was called a shared measurement. What are the key data sources that we are going to rely on that if those move downward, it means that poverty is being reduced? And then we create these core strategies to work together almost as one organization to implement that strategy. So do you start new programs then? We do start new programs, but often what we do is we create a better way of doing something. Every quarter, we meet with that whole network and we learn and we brainstorm and we adjust. New funding sources start to happen. We shore up things um, and we just keep getting better and better and better to the point where I always say a miracle happens. I remember the moment in Des Moines, Iowa, where one of the insurance companies uh, who was on the leadership team, very large company, declared that no one in that company was going to earn less than $15 an hour. And that changed everything. Because as soon as If you know about Des Moines, Iowa, there's lots of insurance companies, there's lots of low-income workers. And so when this company says, we're changing the face of poverty, there starts to become a domino effect. And it's worked in Des Moines, he says. They are hitting their poverty reduction targets. Reduction is the key word. Because in Bourne's mind, just making life better for people in poverty is not enough. We want the kind of community in which poverty cannot exist. And we spend enormous amounts of time educating the community, getting them excited. You know, a lot of our gatherings, when we meet quarterly, it feels a bit like a revival. People are standing up and they're cheering and they're telling their stories and they're excited. You know, it's so different than how you think about poverty being dealt with, right? By, you know, handing soup to someone who is down and out, right? Or, you know, giving someone counseling who's broken. If you walk down the street and you see someone living in misery, you know, someone who's homeless, living in misery. What does that do to you? And when do you start to question when it does nothing? When it's just acceptable? I think as a person that would say that he believes in God, um, I'm just not sure if that's acceptable. If you look at almost any faith set of principles, Christianity, Um, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, that there's a true sense that it has to do with how we live together. And so a world in which we allow poverty to exist would seem to me not consistent with most of the world's understanding of God. What can individuals do in the meantime while they're, while they're hoping, waiting, advocating for their own communities to undertake an effort like this? Like, the people who are helping the poor now are not doing anything wrong. Please don't take that away from here. So if you're giving to a food bank, keep giving to that food bank. If you're teaching um, literacy classes and you're handing out food to people who are homeless, All of these are good things, but just know that you are helping the poor live a little bit better lives. Remember that that Hallmark card, or whether I don't know if it was even a Hallmark card, but it was this this one about this boy on a beach, and there were all these starfish that had washed up, 
And this man walks along and asks the boy, what are you doing? The boy picks up a starfish and throws it back into the ocean. He said, I'm saving the starfish. And the man says, yeah, but there are there are thousands. Uh, how do you think that you're helping? And he picks up another one and says, well, at least I'm helping one. So at its base, that's a good idea. All of us need to do that. But if I was that person and I came onto a beach and saw a thousand starfish, I'd probably pick up 10, throw them in, then I'd run to the local village and I'd say, hey folks, we got a crisis, come and help. And I would try to get as many people, dozens if not hundreds of people to come down to the beach with me. And we would all be throwing starfish back into the water. But they keep coming. So I'd say, hey, are there are there any of you who know something about starfish? Can we quickly gather? Let's talk about it. Let's go upstream. Let's get in a boat and let's figure out what the problem is. And let's see if we can stop that to keep the starfish from coming in. And we'd develop a plan and a strategy and everybody would cheer each other on. And that's how we would try to end the starfish crisis. Yeah, it's good to be that loving and kind person that helps the poor. But at the end of the day, poverty is not just an individual problem. It's not the problem of the person who is poor. It's the problem of the entire community. And we need to figure out how we make poverty uh, something that we all care about and that we understand that by ending poverty, we create a better community to live in for all of us. Thanks to Paul Bourne for sharing his insights. He's founder of the Tamarack Institute and author of a bunch of books about how communities can work together to solve big problems. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me and Jensen Lambert with help from Ciara Hewlett and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschusel, Jacob Molaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you enjoyed the show today, please like and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And if you're inclined to leave a review of the show, that's great. It'll help other people find us. So thanks. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.